Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We spent some time last week looking at the end of Philippians chapter 3. And today we're going to pick up there and then continue into Philippians chapter 4. And the theme of this section is really summarized in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And really the goal of last week's message and this message this morning is to think through what are the implications of what it means to be a citizen of heaven living in this world, experiencing all of the decay and depravity that is around us and also enduring all of the personal challenges and hardships and trials that we face on a personal basis. What are the implications of what it is to be a citizen of heaven, living in light of the life to come, even while we are still in this life? And really, if there is one word in the Christian faith that I think summarizes and encompasses the reality of what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, it is the word hope. And I don't mean hope in the way that the world uses the word hope, which is a wish based on probability or chance. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the Dodgers win their baseball game. I, I hope that I win the lottery. That kind of hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. It's a fantasy, maybe a fairy tale, and that's the way in which hope is often used in our world. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of concrete promises that find their source and their guarantee in the person and character of God. Hope, then, is only as good as the one who promises. And when we put our hope in a God who cannot lie, in a God who is good and sovereign, who has the power to accomplish what he says he will accomplish, our hope then is guaranteed. So for the Christian, when we speak of hope, we're speaking of certainty. And as those who are citizens of heaven then, what are the certainties that we recognize as life-changing realities future truths that affect present choices and present perspectives. Now, I'm going to review just a little bit of what we talked about last week. You'll remember that the context in which this is written is Paul is writing from his first Roman imprisonment. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's under house arrest. You can read all about that experience at the end of the book of Acts. And we were even noting the fact that when Paul first went to Philippi, that he was also thrown in jail on that occasion. That's in Acts chapter 16. So the Philippians know Paul as an imprisoned apostle. He was put in jail the first time he was in Philippi. He's in jail now in Rome, writing a letter to the Philippians. So the historical context for Paul is that Paul doesn't have his freedom He's about to stand trial before Caesar. 
He suffered greatly for the gospel. And yet the theme of this epistle is a theme of joy and a theme of unity in Christ. And you say, how can Paul have that kind of perspective? Our passage today helps answer that question. And then within the book of Philippians as well, the context here in chapter 3 is all about the gospel. So chapter 3 is all about the reality that our right standing before God is not found in our resume of good works and self-righteousness, but instead is found in the reality that Christ accomplished everything, and through faith in him, we are clothed in his righteousness and so we need no righteousness of our own, but instead only that which comes from God through faith in Christ. That's the gospel. And so as those who have embraced the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and salvation available exclusively through Jesus Christ, as those who have embraced him in saving faith, Paul now at the end of chapter 3 reminds us that we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, we were considering this under several headings. And last week, we talked about the contrast, which is seen in verses 17, 18, and 19, really a description of those who have no hope. What is the, the contrast between those who are citizens of heaven and those who have a worldly perspective. And just to remind you, we noted the contrast there in verse 19 that those who have their minds set on the world are those who have a different destiny, right? It says there whose end is destruction. They have a different devotion, a different God whom they serve. Their God is their own appetite, their fleshly, lustful desires. They have a different delight. They glory in their shame. And they have a different domain. They set their minds on earthly things. And you think of the passage in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where the apostle John says that, this world is characterized by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life and that those things are passing away, the passing pleasures of sin. And we talked last week about how these things characterize those in our world, but they represent a contrast for us from who we used to be, Ephesians chapter 2, as those who were dead in our sins, to who we are now, having been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God, such that we now are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is there, even though we are still here. So that's the contrast in verses 17 to 19. And then we talked about the character of our hope in verses 20 to 21, or maybe better said, the content of of our hope. And the content of our hope, as Paul explains what it is to be a citizen of heaven, he highlights three promises in particular in these verses that comprise the substance of what it is that we hope for. These are the promises of God, again, 100% guaranteed, 
absolutely sure because they come from God himself. And these are the realities about our future that ought to change the way that we live in the present. First, he notes the return of our Lord and Savior. He says, we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of Christ. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, Paul will refer to the return of Christ as our blessed hope. The coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the resurrection of our bodies is the second component in verse 21. Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And then thirdly, the reign of our king. He will do this by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The resurrection the return of Christ, the resurrection of our bodies, the reign of our King who will subject all things to himself. And I want to kind of park there for just a minute before we go on to our third point this morning. There is more than just these three promises that comprise the hope that the New Testament gives to us as Christians, but these three certainly serve as major promises that we are anticipating as those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes a difference knowing that Christ is coming back. It makes a difference knowing that one day you will be raised and you will have a body glorified like his body, because as John says in 1 John, when we see him, we will be like him. 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage on the resurrection, talks at length about what our resurrection bodies will be like. And Paul really expresses, almost in hyperbolic terms, it's just going to be so much better. And it makes a difference knowing that Christ will come to establish his kingdom on this earth where, where he will reign perfectly and from there will usher in the eternal state. The millennial kingdom, the promise of the eternal state, these are things that the Apostle John outlines at the end of the book of Revelation. You can read about the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. You can read about the millennial kingdom in the first part of Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment at the end there, and then the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. But those things make a difference for how we live now, right? Why does God tell us about the future, I think the primary reason is because he wants that reality about the future to change the way that we think and act in the present. Knowing that Christ is coming back, how does that affect the decisions I make now? Knowing that this body is temporal, but that one day I will receive a resurrected body, sinless, 
and glorified in which I will worship around the throne forever and ever? How does that change the way I view things here and now? Knowing that Christ will reign on the earth in perfect justice and will reign for all of eternity, how does that change the way that I think about even current events when I get on my phone and I scroll through the headlines? We talked about that last week. That's a recipe for discouragement to scroll through the headlines. Unless, unless that perspective is buttressed by the reality of your future as one who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning talking then about, thirdly, the conduct that ought to flow out of this content here at the end of chapter 3. I know you all know this, that the chapter breaks are not inspired. The chapter breaks were actually added much later. In fact, chapter breaks were added around the time of the invention of the printing press so that as printed Bibles became more and more accessible, it was easier for reference, verse editions and those kinds of things. But there is no break in Paul's flow of thought here from the end of chapter 3 into the beginning of Philippians chapter 4. And in fact, the first word in Philippians chapter 4 is the word therefore, which of course points back to the reality of the end of chapter 3, and in this case provides the mindset and the motivation for the conduct that is to flow out and is fleshed out here in chapter 4. If I'm living as a citizen of heaven, if my hope is activated Right in 1 Thessalonians, Paul refers to it as the hope of the or the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of the hope of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 6, he simply calls it the helmet of salvation. But really, what it is, is it's the hope that you put on your head. It's the perspective that changes the way that you think about what's immediately in front of you in terms of your circumstances and your environment. So how does that reality, the content of our citizenship, the hope that we have in Christ, how does that impact how we live? Well, I'd like to highlight four changes that we see here in verses 1 to 8 in Philippians chapter 4. When we live as citizens of heaven, number one, it changes our resolve. It changes our resolve. This is right here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, in light of the fact that you are citizens of heaven, in light of the fact that Christ is coming back, in light of the fact that he will transform your current body into a resurrected, glorified body, in light of the fact that he will reign in perfect justice. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So the first implication that Paul highlights 
as a reality that flows out of the content of our hope and the realization and recognition of our citizenship in heaven is that we are to stand firm in the Lord. It strengthens our resolve as Christians. And again, the Apostle Paul is writing from a social context in which the Roman Empire is totally pagan. When you read Romans chapter 1, it maps on to what's happening in American society today in some scary ways. But Paul was describing not just the future reality of any society that abandons its commitment to God. He was describing the Roman world of his day. And the Roman world of his day was a place that was very immoral, celebrated paganism. And for Paul, his own personal circumstances, as we've already talked about, he's, in, he's incarcerated. So here's Paul under house arrest in his first Roman imprisonment, writing in the midst of a dark, dark society, and he is encouraging these Philippian believers that they can stand firm in the middle of whatever personal crisis they might be going through and in the midst of a society that's spiraling down. They can stand firm in the Lord because they are buttressed by the truth of the hope that they have in him. I do think it's really interesting throughout this chapter, and we'll note it several times, that when Paul gives these commands, he grounds them and roots them in a source that is something other than circumstances or changes in society. It's always grounded in God. How can you stand firm? Well, you stand firm in the Lord. So it strengthens our resolve. It gives us the ability to endure, to carry on. Secondly, it not only changes our resolve, it also changes our relationships. This reality that we are citizens of heaven, it changes our relationships. Look at verses 2 and 3. I, I just think it's so interesting that Paul, in the course of talking about the implications of what it means to be a citizen of heaven, he stops to actually address <laughs> a very real conflict that was happening in the Philippian congregation. And my expectation is that this conflict was resolved I do feel a little sorry for these ladies who got called out and then that got sort of included in perpetuity here. But look at verses 2 and 3. I, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle <clears throat> in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know the specific circumstances. Obviously, there was some sort of interpersonal conflict there within the Philippian congregation. And yet Paul says, on the basis of the fact that you are citizens of heaven, you need to live in harmony with one another. 
Because when you think about who you are in Christ, it changes your relationships. And this goes all the way back to Philippians chapter two, where at the beginning, Paul says that we are to prefer others as more important than ourselves. And we are to have the attitude of Christ who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And now Paul comes back to that theme and says, as an implication of your citizenship in heaven and your identity in Christ, you now are to live in harmony with fellow believers to seek to serve them, to prefer them, to put them as more important than yourself because in serving them, you're serving Christ. And someone might say, well, does Paul really still have that eternal mindset in view here? I think the answer is yes, because the very last phrase of verse 3 is a reminder of the fact that we, as those who are in Christ, have our names written in the book of life. The registry of the citizens of heaven. So the implications then of our hope are not just so that we can, you know, make a chart that has all of the end times events in accurate order. Working at, uh, working in the context of a seminary, and I am very excited about our seminary graduation service this evening, but working in the context of a seminary, it's always important to remind our students and, and, of course, we use big words in seminary. Um, somewhere along the line, these Latin terms were coined, but the term eschatology is, means the study of last things or the study of end times. And in the context of talking about eschatology, it's always important to remind our students this isn't just so that you can create a chart that's accurate. Like the reason God revealed this truth is not just so that you get your dates right or your events in the right order. It's so that you begin to live now, you live out the implications of these truths. So the reason Paul tells the Philippians, hey, you're citizens of heaven and Jesus is coming back and you're going to be raised and he's going to reign. It's not just so that you can have your eschatology right. It's so that it can change who you are now, and it changes your resolve, and it changes your relationships. And then thirdly, it changes your reactions. It changes your reactions to what happens in this life. This is in verses 4 to 7. Here, Paul gives a series of commands. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And these are some of the most familiar verses in all of the New Testament, not just in the book of Philippians. But I don't want the familiarity of this to breed indifference to the truth of it. Because how is it that the Apostle Paul sitting in jail, how is it that the Apostle Paul living 
in the midst of one of the most pagan societies in history can tell this small group of Philippian believers that they are to respond in ways that are completely counterintuitive. You're in the middle of a trial, you're in the middle of hardship, you're facing challenge, and you're going to respond with joy? There are people in your world who are making life difficult for you, right? He just talked about a conflict in the church in verses 2 and 3, and you're going to respond with gentleness? There are things in the world around you that are causing panic in the minds of most, and you're going to respond in a way that evidences a supernatural peace? How is this possible? How can you have joy and hardship? How can you respond with gentleness and kindness in conflict? How can you react to scary things in a way that is unflustered and marked by peace? Well, again, this is an implication of the reality that you are a citizen of heaven and therefore your future is secure. Your king is coming back. Your body and your soul will be saved. And your Lord is going to reign and he will set all things right. And in light of that future reality, I can have joy in the present no matter what happens. And you'll notice again that Paul makes it very clear that the source of his joy is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's not rejoice in your circumstances. It's not rejoice in what's happening in the political world or the social arena. It's rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. And then even verse 5, how, do I, how is it possible to respond with gentleness in conflict? Is it not because, oh yeah, the Lord is near. He's coming back. He will set all things right. Vengeance is his. I can trust him with that. And then how is it possible to not become anxious? Well, it's because with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we are bringing our burdens to the Lord. And when we cast our cares on him because he cares for us, verse 7 promises us that he will give us his peace, peace that comes from knowing that he is in charge and he has got this. So the hope that we have, the hope that we have as citizens of heaven, it changes how we react. It changes how we respond with joy, with gentleness, with peace. We're not overcome by sadness. We're not overcome by anger. We're not overcome by anxiety because the source of our hope and the source of our strength 
is our Lord, the Lord who is coming for us and who will establish his kingdom. Well, there's a fourth category, and I realize I'm highlighting these things quickly. We could spend easily a full sermon on every single one of these points, and you're always welcome to go to the Grace to You website where you can hear multiple sermons on each of these verses. But I think it's helpful sometimes to just step back and see the big picture of what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's talking about chapter 3, the gospel. The gospel means our citizenship and our identity is different. We are Christians. Our identity is in Christ. We are citizens of heaven. That means that we have a hope that we are looking forward to. That hope, the content of it, includes his return, our resurrection, his reign, and the reality of those truths makes a difference for how we live, how we conduct ourselves now. It changes our resolve. It changes our relationships. It changes our reactions and responses. And here in verse 8, it changes our reasoning. It changes our reasoning. It changes our perspective. It changes the way that we think. This last uh, Wednesday was actually my wife's birthday on Wednesday. And... She wanted to go to the Reagan Library. We were, we were laughing later that we're at a stage of life now where we want to go to presidential libraries and museums for birthdays. So, but she wanted to go to the Reagan Library out in Simi Valley, and so that's where we went. And I love that place as well, so we just had a great time. If you've not been to the Reagan Library, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful place. And right now, they're doing a special exhibit highlighting World War II. And my wife loves World War II history. She loves World War II history because her grandfather served in World War II. And as we were going through that exhibit, and it's worth seeing if, if you decide to make it out there. It's, it was a pretty cool exhibit. But there was one particular display that really stood out to me. It was a display about the Bibles that were distributed to GIs during World War II. And these Bibles, these New Testaments, actually had metal covers, and they were pocket size, and they were made so that they could fit inside the shirt pocket of the uniform of the soldiers, and they became known as heart shield Bibles. And in fact, there was a story in the little display there told the story. There was a story about a soldier. His name was John Phillips. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he was on patrol, and he suddenly came under fire and got shot, I think, multiple times. But he survived. And in the aftermath of all that happened, he pulled his little Bible out of his pocket, and there was a bullet lodged in the Bible. And it was from stories like his and others that these Bibles became known as heart shield Bibles. And the verse that they associated with it was Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. (laughs) Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows the wellspring of life. 
But I just thought that was so cool. I'm there in the Reagan Presidential Library in the World War II exhibit, and there's this wonderful little explanation about these heart shield Bibles. Now, they, of course, were referring to the physical protection that having a piece of metal covering a vital organ <laughs> provided. But I, I just thought that was a cool analogy, even about how we think. And, and verse 8 here in Philippians chapter 4 is all about how we think. It's about our perspective. Let me read it. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Because the hope that we have as Christians, it, just, it doesn't just change what we do, it also changes how we think. And the reason I mention the heart shield Bibles is because the way that we renew our minds is through the washing and cleansing of the truth of the word of God. How do we get to a place where what we think is right and true and pure and good? It is through the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit as he takes his word, applies it to our hearts, and shows us Christ. And as we see Christ, we are conformed into the image of Christ. I think there's a practical import even to that analogy of the Heart Shield Bible because... The bullets that are getting shot at us, Ephesians chapter 6, the fiery darts that are getting shot at us, they're unlikely that those are physical projectiles. But there are temptations that come, and certainly in the world in which we live, how is it that we can guard our hearts? Is it not by renewing our minds through the Word of God so that this becomes a characteristic of how we think? To think like a citizen of heaven is to allow those future realities to so change all of who we are that our resolve is impacted, our relationships are impacted, our reactions and responses to the trials and hardships of life are changed. And even our reasoning, the way that we think, the way that we process what's happening in the world around us, it is changed. So that when we see those headlines on our news app, or however you get your news, we're processing them through an eternal perspective, a mindset that's different, a biblical worldview. And even as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are casting down those things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So the contrast with our hope is seen in the way that the world runs after its lusts and the passing pleasures of sin. That's chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. The content of our hope and the character of it is that we are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, there are future realities that are ours in Christ. And those realities ought to change how we think and act in the present. And they include the reality of his return, of our resurrection, and of his reign. 
And the implications of that is that it changes our ability to stand firm and our willingness to get along and the way in which we find joy and peace in a very chaotic world and even the way that we think because our minds have been cleansed through Christ, through the power of his spirit, through the truth of his word. Now I want to show you a compelling example of all of this because our text gives us a compelling example. And so we move from the conduct that flows out of what it means to be a citizen of heaven into finally a compelling example of someone who lived this out. And that's the Apostle Paul. In fact, you'll notice in verse 9, he encourages the Philippians to follow his example. He says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And then you'll notice that Paul, the prisoner, says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then this is just so amazing to me, verses 11 to 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to have it in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love verse 13 because it's often taken out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It was probably a decade ago that a famous college quarterback used to wear that on the eye black that was under his eyes, the glare blocker. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can win the football game through Christ who strengthens me. While I appreciate the, I think, the intent behind the way that this verse is sometimes used, it's always important to keep verses within their context. And in this context, what Paul is saying is, I can be content. I can have that resolve of verse 1. I can respond in my relationships with others in a way that is unified and harmonious, verses 2 and 3. I can respond with joy, verse 4, with gentleness, verse 5, with peace, verses 6 and 7. And I can think in an eternal way. I can have an eternal perspective. I can have a proper mindset in any circumstance. That's what Paul means when he says, I can be content. I can be content in any circumstance because Christ gives me the strength. And so we see here in verses 9 to 13 this compelling example of a man who has suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel, and we reviewed some of that last time, who is currently imprisoned in Rome, chained to a Roman guard, 
who will be released, but only to be arrested a second time, thrown into a Roman dungeon, and eventually executed by an evil Roman emperor named Nero, one of the most notorious in all of Roman history. In fact, it was about five years before Paul wrote this that Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, We think that was probably a person who was really giving him trouble, maybe one of the false teachers there in Corinth. Some have thought maybe it was a physical ailment, and Paul certainly had those as well. But in any case, Paul was going through a really difficult time, and Paul cried out to God three times to remove this thorn from him, and the response was, no, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul uses similar language here in Philippians chapter 4, five years later. He says, I can endure any circumstance and be content because Christ is my strength. My question for you this morning, my question for me this morning is, is that our attitude? that whatever personal challenge, hardship, trial, affliction you are facing this morning, are you able to respond to that and say, this hurts a lot, but I can still have joy and peace, and I can respond in a way that is gentle and patient, and I can have resolve and perspective, and I can be content Because I'm a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, I know that my Lord will return. And I know that he will make all things right. And that includes the resurrection of my frail body. More important than that, it includes his sovereign, perfectly just reign over all. And the God who promises those future realities is also the God of present comfort. The God who is with you. So that Paul can say in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. And he can say in verse 13, I found my contentment through the strength I have in Christ. As a Christian, If my identity is found in him, then my joy, my peace, my security, my fulfillment, my satisfaction, and my hope are all found in him. The contrast is seen in the world. The content is something that looks forward to the future. And the conduct is something that puts into practice now the implications of those future realities. To quote Pastor Harry, can you say amen to that? (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the truth of your word and the hope that you promise us in your word based on the work of your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, our prayer today is that we would live as citizens of heaven, living in light of future realities 
future certainties because of what your son accomplished in the past so that we might be transformed in the present. Make us those who are living as light in a dark world so that through us, your glory and the glory of your gospel might be reflected. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior and coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.